Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hello, I'm Richard Scott, and welcome to the Podcast Hour. With so many shows out there already, about 550,000 at the last count, and hundreds more coming out every single week, it isn't easy to tell which ones are any good. So I listen to lots of stuff, and then share the best of it with you. Coming up today, colourful slices of California life in Welcome to LA. From the moment I arrived, I could tell something was very wrong. I could smell it in the air. It turned out to be a dead cat riding on the sidewalk. Can listening to other people's stories help build up your empathy? My name is Diane Lawrence. I'm 60 years old and a mother of two sons. And my eldest son is transgender. Conversations with people doing unpopular and controversial jobs in How Do You Sleep at Night? I really genuinely love tobacco. I love what I do. And finally, a light-hearted look at self-improvement with the self-renovators. They're two comedians testing out a different self-help method every week. Final thoughts? Kimchi. Sodomy. Good luck with your bulleting, guys. Remember, bullet journals don't kill people. Lack of organisation kills people. People kill bullet journals? Mm, maybe. Bye. Night, night. And next time you hear something good, do let me know. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email. And on Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. Los Angeles is the second biggest city in the US with four million people. And its importance as a major centre for film and TV production means that for ages people have been moving there, lured by the promise of better work and the prospect of Hollywood fame. Among them is sound engineer David Weinberg and his girlfriend, who upped sticks and moved cross-country from St Louis a few years back. Welcome to L.A. portrays their sometimes jarring adjustment to California life, introducing a cross-section of crazy stories and kooky characters that seem to live in a grey area somewhere between fact and fiction. Petty criminals, adult entertainment workers, drum circle facilitators, Hollywood hopefuls and Hollywood has-beens, all human life is here. KCRW, this is Welcome to L.A., Episode 2, Paradise Motel. Back in the fall of 2008, I lucked into a job doing sound on a reality show. It was just for one day. 
I was living in New Orleans at the time, and a movie producer I knew was in a pinch. Her boom operator couldn't make it for a shoot, and she knew that I had experience working with recording equipment, so she asked me if I could fill in. The show was called Out of a Jam. This was a few weeks before the 2008 presidential election. The premise of the show was that America was on the verge of possibly electing the first black president. And if we did, surely everything in American life would be different. How could it not be? The central question posed by this show was what impact a black president would have on music, specifically jam bands. In order to answer this question, a bunch of prominent jam band musicians were flown to New Orleans where they would all live together in a house for a week. The house was next door to a music venue, and throughout the week, musicians would have access to the venue where on stage all their instruments were set up for spontaneous jam sessions inspired by the idea of a black president. And in between the jams, the musicians were interviewed. My job was to hold the boom mic for these interviews and to be at the ready to record the jam sessions because, as one of the producers told me, these guys could jam at any time. But there was no jamming the day I worked on Out of a Jam. After a few hours of interviews, the musicians got high and didn't come out of the house for the rest of the night. Out of a Jam never got released, and I don't know enough about jam bands to be able to say how the music changed under the Obama administration. But I can say that the one day I spent as a sound man planted a seed. When I moved to Los Angeles four years later, my plan was to get a job recording sound for film and television as a way to support myself while I pursued my dream of being a reporter. And after arriving in L.A., it only took me 10 days to get a job doing sound on a movie. Though maybe job isn't quite the right word because it didn't pay. I was promised a producer credit and free food. I found the job on Craigslist. A director making a feature needed someone who had their own equipment to record sound for two days of shooting. I called the number on the listing and said that I had a tape recorder and a couple microphones. The director said he could provide a boom pole, and that was the extent of the interview. He told me to come to the Paradise Motel on Sunset Boulevard at 4.45 p.m. that Sunday. Paradise has one of those big, classic neon signs advertising color TV in bright red light, the rooms arranged in an L shape around the parking lot. From the moment I arrived, I could tell something was very wrong. I could smell it in the air. It turned out to be a dead cat rotting on the sidewalk. I walked past it and was greeted by the director, Shane, who was much younger than I expected. He looked nervous. His eyes kept darting around suspiciously, as he ushered me into one of the rooms and shut the door. There were guns and bags of white powder scattered around the room. A woman sat on the bed making adjustments on a small camera. Shane told me to sit tight. He had to go make a phone call. So I sat down and started getting out my recording equipment. The woman on the bed introduced herself. Her name was Manet. She told me she was the director of photography. Then... She grabbed my microphone. Shane came back into the room and explained why he was so nervous. 
He didn't have permission to film at the motel. The Paradise typically charges thousands of dollars per day to film on location. Shane had paid less than 100 the cost of a single room for one night. The motel manager was already suspicious. Lots of people had been coming and going from the room, and he told Shane that if someone so much as pulled out a cell phone to take a photo, that he'd be kicked out. I still had no idea what the movie was about, so I asked about the script. Shane told me there was no script. That he had an outline for how the story would go, but all the scenes would be improvised. I did come across a piece of paper that had one-paragraph summaries of each scene. I noticed one of the characters' names was Intellectual Hooker. A producer handed me a boom pole for my microphone, but no one had a cable long enough to go from the mic to the recorder, so the boom pole was useless. The director told me to just lay on the floor between the beds and point my mic as close as I could to the actors' mouths, which didn't seem ideal. Eventually, the actors showed up. A young woman named Mimi and the star of the film, Kevin Gage. His character's name in the movie, strangely, was also Kevin Gage. He plays a corrupt cop deep in the throes of a downward spiral. Most of his scenes involve doing drugs, selling drugs, or assaulting prostitutes in motel rooms. The first scene we filmed was the opening shot of the movie. Shane explained Kevin Gage's character this way. Just big, kind of big sigh. You, you just know in an instant that life sucks for this guy. Like he, his idea of life is that it's shit. And I just want to Shane asks Kevin that. if there's a way for him to show without speaking that his life is total shit. And it's just shit pouring out of you. There's a way of just doing that somehow without saying or doing anything. Just, just do it every morning. <laughs> and Kevin says, I usually do it every morning. Shouldn't be that tough. It's a small moment that I don't think much of when it happens. But it's the first sign that as the day progresses, the lines between fiction and reality start to break down. Kevin Gage used to be famous. Not quite a household name, but he had memorable roles as villains in a few of the biggest Hollywood action movies of the mid-90s. He's been headbutted by Vin Diesel. Shot in the chest by Robert De Niro. He double-crossed Johnny Depp, screamed at Demi Moore, and was beaten to death by Nicolas Cage. You know this gentleman, Hunter? He's a regular. Yeah, I'm a regular. Regular hound dog. <laughs> this is a special occasion. If you don't mind, I'd like to spend a dance with my wife. Hey, what, so? Why don't you go buy me and my buddies around? In real life, he was married to Kelly Preston before they split and she married John Travolta. But Kevin Gage's life as he knew it came crashing down in 2003 when he was sentenced to three years and five months in a federal prison. It's hard to pinpoint the moment when it all began to unravel for Kevin Gage. But I suppose you could trace it all back to Mary Magdalene. Some of episode two called Paradise Motel from KCRW's Welcome to L.A., presented by David Weinberg. (laughs) 
Could listening to other people's stories be an important way to build empathy? That valuable ability to put yourself in someone else's position to understand their feelings. That's one of the interesting ideas getting explored in an art installation that's now become a podcast called A Mile in My Shoes. The arty part of the idea is that a shipping container designed to look like a shoebox arrives in your town. You borrow a real pair of someone else's shoes, put on your headphones and go for a walk while you listen to a story lasting about 10 minutes from the shoe's owners. And these stories come from a collection featuring people from all walks of life, from sex workers to surgeons, from refugees to the rescue services. Now, the borrowing the shoes part isn't going to be an option if you subscribe to the podcast, but I'll speak to artist Claire Patey, who set up the project in a minute, about how it all works. These stories are even being used to influence English MPs. First, though, here's one of the stories from Australia. A gentleman, he was actually a Member of Parliament, and his office was in the same building as the pharmacy I worked in. And his wife came and and said... uh, my husband wants to do the ring test on your baby to see what you're having. And I said, go for it, you know, put out the stomach, it's all there, go for it. And he predicted that I was having a little boy. His wife assured me that he had never been wrong. He'd been doing it for 30 years. And when I gave birth to a little girl, the man was devastated. I just about had to take the nappy off to prove it, you know, that Nick was a little girl. But I'd love to be able to reach that man now and say, you were right, and put his record back to being perfect. My name is Diane Lawrence. I'm 60 years old and I'm mother of two sons and my eldest son is transgender. Nick, from a very early age, was very tomboyish, didn't like girly clothes, didn't like frilly things. As a matter of fact, I actually had to pay him once to wear a frilly shirt to impress his auntie. I had no idea what Nick was going through as a teenager, but I was aware that she had issues with her emotions and and ups and downs. I put a lot of it down to teenage hormones. You know, you do get a bit out of whack. I tried to feed him vitamin B, but he thought I was going to turn him into a drug addict. (laughs) That was hilarious, that argument. Yeah, I just didn't realise that my situation with Nick was probably worse than what was normal, but... None of my friends sort of had girls that age, so I had nothing to compare it to. Nick opened up to me about being lesbian when he was around 15 or 16. I was a little bit devastated when he told me about it. I didn't understand it, so I had to do a lot of research into it, I suppose, just to educate myself, because I'd already suspected it before he came out and told me. He was very harsh the way he told me, basically said, oh, I'm gay, mum, deal with it. Nick was highly, always has been highly intelligent, but couldn't settle to any particular career. We tried a few different things, personal trainers, you name it, all sorts of jobs. He got offered an apprenticeship as a motor mechanic and he just hit his stride, just loved it. That was really the start for Nick because right up to that, being gay... There's still a lot of prejudice out there about, you know, girls working in men's worlds and things like that. I know he's been on the T's, as they call them, the injections and that, for four years now. But he put off telling me because I was in a major stress situation myself and he didn't want to add to my stress 
That's what a gorgeous kid he is. He um, put it off as long as he could, but he said he had started to see changes in himself and he thought, if I don't tell mum real soon, she's going to get one hell of a shock. So, yeah, he came over and sat me down and told me. It was a bit nerve-wracking for me. I just thought, what next? <laughs> you know, what's going to happen next? And Nick explained it all to me. He was just brilliant. And at the end of the conversation, I was quite happy to see that the path he was going on seemed to be what he wanted. One of the biggest annoyances that Nick has if people call him a her or call him by his original name, which was Nicole, but I'm the only one in the world that's allowed to call Nick a girl or her, which I frequently do. And when I'm angry, Nicole always comes out. I was pretty upset in a sense that I'd lost my daughter. To have my own little girl, that was, that's my every mum's dream. And to have grandchildren and all that sort of things, that was very hard for me to, to deal with. But I couldn't show that to Nick because Nick had enough of his own things to deal with. He didn't need to deal with a mum that was losing the plot a bit. I just kept it to myself and, and dealt with it my own way, which I always have done. I do have some awesome friends that I did discuss it with. I thought, what, what if they don't accept Nick the way he is? I think I'm really blessed to have a really magnificent group of friends because everybody was just so supportive. And they said, well, yeah, if that's what makes Nick happy and makes you happy, makes everybody happy, that's good. In a way, I know I did think to myself, I was glad my dad had gone. Like My mother died when I was very young, so I never had a mum. But I don't think my dad could have dealt with it. He never even knew that Nick was gay. I just, he's the real old-time Australian, bushy, you know, farmer, shearer. And I, I have no idea whether, how he would have reacted. Nick warned me right from the start, told me stage by stage what transition would happen and in, usually in what period of time, you know. So um, I've had no surprises as such. It's been interesting to see the changes, like the hereditary side of it, where as a, a female, Nick had a full head of hair, magnificent head of hair. But now as a man, he's taken up the genes from the men's side of our family and he's going bald. He said he would like get more masculine facial features. His body would grow. It would become more, more masculine. Like he's got really nice big shoulders and <laughs> big muscles. And um, his facial features, he's got a much stronger jaw. It doesn't have the nice cheekbones anymore. They're gone. Uh, he's got a beard, which I don't like. If he ever goes to sleep around me, I'm going to shave it off. <laughs> but, yeah, that's his choice. And weirdly enough, his feet grew. Before this happened to Nick or... Nick decided to go down this journey. I had never heard of it. I'd seen, because Nick is gay, I'd been out in the gay group with Nick. You know, I've gone to the court with them and Connie's and, you know, I mix with all their friends. They're all awesome people. And you do see people that, like men dressed up as girls and they're, oh, trans, oh, I can't think of the word, 
transvestites, that's the word, transvestites. But I'd never heard of transgender before. Nick has just changed so much. He's so stable as a person. There's not this flighty up one minute, down the next, and no raging hormones, I suppose. It was just because Nick was so frustrated with his life, I think, the way it was. Nick set up Trans Men WA because there was nothing here for the young ones coming up. As far as transitioning, Nick transitioned fairly late in life, at early 30s. Some translate even later, but generally the kids today are knowing in their early teens that they want to be a boy or a girl. And Nick found that there was no support or anything in WA. So Nick thought, well, I'll do it myself. Now Nick's making speeches. He's doing lectures to university students. He did a lecture recently to a stadium full of professors and psychologists and that, teaching them about transgender. And I was like, wow, that's my kid. Just so confident. I just love to see him doing that. The person that Nick used to be as a girl, that person could never have done anything like that. Diane Lawrence's story produced by Mary Fatin for A Mile In My Shoes. And Claire Patey's the artist who came up with the idea. I guess it's about exploring the kind of notion of shared humanity and that all of the stories in some way are rooted in something that we all experience. So they might be about grief, but they also might be about love. And they're all things that we can find points of connection with. I guess it's also a moment where you spend 10 minutes, and I know that doesn't sound very long, but actually listening to another person without any other distraction. And you're on a physical journey. So you're doing the walking and an emotional journey because you're listening to the story. But it's very intimate. And is that because of the medium? Is that because you are wearing headphones and, and, you know, people talk about listening to podcasts and the way that that's almost, you know, the voice is right there in your head. Is that part of the reason this works? I think so. I think it's very, very intimate. I think it works for that reason in that you feel like this person is literally talking to you and they're kind of like your friend, but then you're wearing their shoes, so you're embodying something of them. And that is really powerful too because you are walking along and you can kind of feel the shape of their their shoes. And you might be wearing a pair of giant waders or a pair of roller skates or if you're a guy you might be wearing like size 12 patent leather stilettos it's you know that it could be really different from what you're used to walking around in and obviously if you're getting the podcast which you've set up you're not going to be getting the shoes as well so what could you do to recreate that well we've got a picture of the shoes and at the beginning of each podcast there's a description of the shoes so you hopefully get in that in your imaginary life And also we just suggest that it's best listened to if you actually walk. So where have you actually done this so far? We've been all over the UK. We've just finished a project with the National Theatre of Scotland with stories from teenagers. We've shown it in the Houses of Parliament with a special version just around the National Health Service. So the idea was to get policymakers to walk in the shoes of the people who deliver the service. We've done it in festivals in Europe, and we've been at the Perth International Arts Festival in Australia. 
We've been in Sao Paulo in Brazil. I've just come back from New York. We've done it there. And everywhere we go, we try to collect new shoes and new stories from the community in which we're showing the exhibition. So the collection, if you like, is constantly growing and the voices, the diversity of the voices is, is constantly growing too. And how do people respond when they come back from this walk and, and this listen? What, what, are they, what kind of things do they say? There have been all sorts of reactions. We've had people who've written entire letters to the person that they've just heard. We've had people in tears because it's brought something up from them. We've had people who've said it's really challenged their preconceived ideas about what that kind of person might be like. We've had quite grumpy older man who said that it just made him like other people more, which I liked. Um, <laughs> Drat. Surgeons come in talking about like how the when you train to be a surgeon, you have to kind of completely break down your empathy. Otherwise, you couldn't like operate on a body. And just talking about the kind of wider concept of empathy. We've had people talking about issues of like social justice and human rights. And then people just talking about their own experience of bereavement or love or whatever it is. I think it's a bit like going traveling. When you go traveling, you think, oh, I'm going to go to India or something. I'm going to learn loads and loads about Indian culture. And you'd go there. And actually, what it also does is make you reflect on your own culture and how you've seen that for your entire life without kind of questioning it. And I think it's got all sorts of other uses in terms of things like design. I mean, how do you design a tin opener for somebody who is in their 80s with arthritis or things to do with kind of restorative justice and bringing people together who have committed an, or been victims of a crime. One of the things we did was we were, we did the collected these stories from across the National Health Service. And a really powerful moment for me was when a local doctor walked in the shoes of his receptionist and they worked together every day. And they probably sit maybe 20 metres apart from each other every day. And he just turned to her and said, I had absolutely no idea that that was what your experience is like every day at work. And it's completely changed my view of how the practice runs and how I kind of see the roles within it. And I felt like that was, you know, that's as important to me as walking in the shoes of someone who's come from across the world or has a very different cultural or religious belief to you, a political view. How do you choose the people to tell their stories? It's mainly based on location. So, for instance, we opened the very first one on the banks of the River Thames in Vauxhall, and it's an area that's changing a lot. There's a lot of building going on. The new American embassy is based there. But there's also a, uh, traditionally a very big kind of gay scene and drag scene in the local pub. So we got everyone from a drag queen to someone whose family had worked on the Thames for 400 years to a gardener from the American embassy. So we kind of reach out geographically and then through kind of community networks. And then what happens is, and through social media and stuff, and then what happens is people go, oh, you must talk to George. He runs the garage down the road and he's got this amazing story about whatever, or he's a great storyteller. And then, you know, gradually, gradually, you begin to find the people who would be happy to share their story. And is it an interview in the conventional sense where you're asking questions or do you literally just surrender the mic to the person and say, look, you, you say what you want? We do a kind of pre-interview, so we'd get some idea of what someone might want to say. And sometimes it's very kind of um, not prescribed, but people are coming with a particular story that they want to tell about um, maybe being the mother of someone, a transgender person, and they want to talk about the experience of that. So that there would be a kind of 
uh, narrative arc to that story and we would talk to someone about that but sometimes it's much more open than that like what's it like to own a shop that serves a local community and you're a barber and you just talk about that and actually a whole load of things come out of that conversation but we talk to people for quite a long time and then edit it down to 10 minutes and I work with an amazing team of audio producers I don't do all that right because it's interesting isn't it I I would have thought going somewhere with a microphone and recording gear it would kind of inhibit people a little bit. But a few people now have said, no, in a funny way, actually having recording gear and a microphone, in a sense, it breaks down barriers in a funny way and it makes people open up a little bit more. What do you think about that? I'm not sure, but I think there is definitely that stranger on the bus syndrome. (laughs) Like, you know, you might tell someone in a room on your own where you're being encouraged to share your story, something that you might not tell people who are related to you or that you see every day there's a kind of freedom in it i think you could say anything there's a kind of freedom and an openness in that and actually you're saying to someone what's it like to be you what's it like to walk a mile in your shoes and i guess in a sense it's quite a flattering thing to be asked that you know maybe some people don't get asked that question very much and they probably respond quite well to being able to tell the story in their own words absolutely i think you know whose voices get heard is a really political issue And um, we try to ask kind of as diverse a group of people as possible in terms of age, in terms of what they do, in terms of class, gender, uh, background, culture, the whole thing. Claire Patey of the Empathy Museum and the A Mile In My Shoes podcast. And one container-sized shoebox is expected to make an appearance at next year's Melbourne International Arts Festival. The ABC series, How Do You Sleep at Night, introduces six people doing unpopular or controversial things. From abortion clinic protesters to big game hunters and people making billions from running pokey machines, the show's host, Sarah McVeigh, gently probes why they do what they do and how they justify it to themselves. This is a man who smokes Marlboro cigarettes. What kind of a man is he? I believe in economic freedom, personal freedom, social freedom. When I get up in the morning and I come to work, it's not just about a product or a company. There is an underlying principle which I believe in. It is a principle which sustains me and motivates me in what I do. I really genuinely love tobacco. I love what I do. I'm Sarah McVie, and this is How Do You Sleep at Night? It's a show about the very personal line between right and wrong. It's about the people who live their lives in the face of judgment. Imagine going to a party and saying to people, Hi, I'm a tobacco lobbyist. That industry has shown itself over decades to be the least trusted and the most unethical industry on the planet. In this episode, we meet Patrick Mutart, a smooth-talking Canadian with a background in political spin. These days, he works from an office overlooking the Yarra River. His job is to make the case for big tobacco. I don't like the term big tobacco. I think it's a really antiquated term. I think we've reached a point in time where it's no longer about big tobacco, but there's new tobacco 
and there's old tobacco. Philip Morris are old tobacco. They've been at it 170 years. But being here in their bright white offices, it feels like they're really angling for a new tobacco vibe. When I first asked them to speak to me, they said they have a new strategy. They've decided to be more open with the media, they said. They've invited me to a party they've put on for the Greek business community. There are around 40 men sitting around their foyer eating fancy canapes and drinking expensive champagne. To understand where we are as a Patrick's tall, clean-shaven and comfortable in his sharp suit. His job is to impress people and he's got his lines ready. Tobacco has been around for a very, very long time. In fact, we've had tobacco for almost as long as we've had Greeks. And uh, as you all know from your strong sense of history, that is a very, very long time. People had been using tobacco products since about 100 AD. The products were first commercialized in the 1500s. And even today, the WHO estimates that there still will be around a billion smokers in the world in 2030. Quoting the World Health Organization is pretty ballsy. And we're just so thrilled that you've given up some of your time to come here to listen to us talk about our uh, our vision and share our vision of a smoke-free future. Thank you very much. I'm curious to know how someone becomes a tobacco lobbyist. Does anyone ever say, when I grow up, I want to work for a cigarette company? I'm meeting Patrick in an inner city pub. It feels a little like his media guy chose it just for me. There are band posters on the walls, a pool table and craft beer on tap. Can we start, like, way, way back? When you were a little kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a politician. Um, I've been fascinated by politics and public affairs since I was a kid. And it literally started when I was uh, 12 years old. Um, I got a paper route. And it was Route 15 with the Daily Sentinel Review, which was my local paper in Woodstock, Ontario. And I didn't come from a political family or even a white-collar family. Um, We didn't really talk a lot about politics at home. But in delivering the newspaper, I started reading the newspaper. I started following political developments. There's that old saying, if you're not a socialist when you're young, you have no heart. If you're not a conservative when you're old, you have no brain. Patrick's evolution from the left to the right happened way quicker than that. As a 12-year-old, he flirted with the left. But as he got to understand politics a little better, he became a staunch conservative. Around the time that I was um, 16, I realized that um, I was more of a Tory than a Liberal, and I became more active in Conservative politics. Were you a fairly unusual child? Thoroughly unusual. (laughs) Thoroughly unusual. Around this time, my pie and mash arrives. Patrick's not eating. I suppose there's worse things that a teenager can be doing than volunteering at the local uh, political campaign. What about friends at school? Were you kind of... Did they think it was weird? I, I generally hung out with the, uh, with the nerds. So my, uh, my friends in the debating club and the United Nations club were, were highly <laughs> supportive. Patrick tells me a story I'm sure he's told many, many times before. By the age of 33, he was working in Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper's office. 
He was seen as a wonder kid of conservative politics, known for understanding what everyday people wanted from politicians. He studied hard. He even came to Australia to observe John Howard's campaign style. So I was always a believer in and I think an executioner of, you know, clear, concise, impactful political communication. And in Howard, I saw a principled conservative leader who had an ability to connect with ordinary people. And we were able to... Um, uh, to take away a number of, uh, of lessons. And it, it was interesting in, in reaching out to some of the people around Prime Minister Howard, uh, we began a, a relationship that has continued uh, to this day, a very strong relationship. What do you think people think of you? I, I, think people, I, I think people, when they meet people like me and the people that I work with, I think they see people who are genuinely committed to these underlying principles of personal freedom and individual responsibility. Patrick Muttart, a.k.a. Mr Tobacco, from the ABC series How Do You Sleep at Night, presented by Sarah McVeigh. Dave MacDonald did the sound design. The supervising producer was Justine Kelly, and Kelly Reardon was the executive producer. Caroline Maybe and Taylor Glenn are friends and comedians, trying to keep an open mind when it comes to self-improvement. So in each episode of their podcast, Self-Renovators, they test out some of the self-help techniques claimed to help you lead a better, happier, more productive life. For a week, they'll try out, say, breathing exercises, a digital detox, or even a gruelling regime of cold showers, and report back on whether it's helped them what the science says, and if they're going to adopt the method, adapt it, or ditch it altogether. Here they're trying out a productivity tool called a bullet journal. If you Google it, you'll see it's become a bit of a thing, since it was invented by a Brooklyn designer called Ryder Carroll a few years back. It's a bit like a good old written to-do list, just far, far prettier and a lot more complicated. I kept having to go back and try and try and figure out what a bullet journal was and like find these YouTuber instructional videos. Yeah. And one of the things um, that some people do is a gratitude log. Yeah. So at the back of my book, I really like this. I've got like gratitude log and then um, one line for each day of say of the month and then the idea was to write one thing you know just to keep counting your blessings to keep remembering the good things in your life but it's impossible to just write one thing per day because it turns out there's millions so even though I'm in this frazzled overwhelmed state I'm finding at least three things plus exclamation marks (laughs) that I have to put in so it's so um, pretty she just it's, has all these different colors, and it makes me grateful. It does like the, for your penmanship. The, the, the colors are a bit frazzly, but I've got um, Monday the sixteenth. I get to go to the gym. Tuesday the seventeenth, gardening, washing machines, Tilly. Just being Tilly's my friend. Oh, okay. Um, Don't put then, Tilly in the washing machine. Never put Tilly I in the washing you. machine. So, and then then it, the idea is, anytime you feel like. Oh, you know, feel sorry for yourself. Go and look at these. Yes. Wonderful. I think Taylor's in there more than once. What? Look at that. 
It's brilliant. Oh, you're shitting me, man. That makes me want to cry. Yeah. I'm in your gratitude for today. I'm grateful for you today. Today Can't hasn't even line. happened yet. <sighs> wow, today hasn't even happened yet. <laughs> and do you know what? This is the big thing I'm missing, and I remember you saying you can do a gratitude log in here, and I think I need to add that. That might okay. be that might bring me back to the bullet yeah. journal as like a new. It's a really really task. simple thing. Yeah, and it's and it's really cute. And I this one I've stopped doing on the opposite page to the gratitude log. I've got mm-hmm. things to things let. I hate. <laughs> People are hitting tennis, tennis like in there a lot. I made more. that a lot as well. It's yeah. so funny. Top of the pops. Uh, things to let go of. This this came from a breathing oh. exercise where you set an intention. Yeah. And the way you make it positive is you say, "What would you want more of?" Okay. No, no. You say, "What would you like? What would you like less of?" Oh, okay. In your life, and what would, what would that make more room for? Um, so. I, on Tuesday the seventeenth, I would like less resentment and more uh, and more competitiveness. No, that's wrong. That's wrong. I would like <laughs> less resentment and competitiveness, and to make way for positivity and generosity. You know, um, and I did like a week of that, and then I got bored of how improved I was getting. Basically. Oh, just like your friend, like, like she was too productive, you yeah. got too enlightened. I want to let go of frustration and make way for patience. Want to get rid of delay and make way for action. Making a difference, one step at a time. Okay, this is the perfect roundup before we get to our finale because now I have bullet journal envy. Yes. And so maybe things. a little competitiveness is because yes, yes, now yes, yes. I'm going to write down what she has. I want to do a gratitude log and things to let go of. Cheese. I have way and too I much made, cheese in my life. I made that up. I made. I mean, I made it. I didn't get that from the YouTube. You didn't? I chose it from... <gasps> get on, on social media, dude. Yeah. You could be like the next bullet journal baby. And then the other thing is the habit tracker where you can... Over a month period, you can like you can get as many different habits as you want. Like it could be work or parenting or whatever, or drinking water or uh, breathing, and yeah. you tick off if you breathe yeah. that day. And over, <laughs> and over the month, you can see you know if there's something okay. you want to keep track of, like alcohol consumption. Or... Yeah, I d- definitely need to drink more wine. Yes, I'm finding it really hard to get the units I need. Exactly, so I will do that. You need your oh, nutrition. see, that's cool too. You nailed this task. I'm really happy for you, and I feel like a little bit of a slacker. Do you know what? I think maybe I feel sad as well because I don't, I don't want to stop using my bullet journal. And now that we've recorded the episode, I won't have the, I won't have the impetus to keep doing it. Well, as and long as I'm starting to feel like I'm becoming productive, yeah. as long as we both feel like shit, yes, that's what self-renovators are all about. So, so adapt, adapt, adopt. adopt or drop. What's it going to be, Caroline? I'm going to keep on adapting it. Okay. Hopefully. Me too. Oh, I just Damn feel it. really sad if this is... If Don't I give do up stop. on it. You're so good at it. I'm so good. Look at this. You're a bullet Brutal cuts. Minimal additions. Learn, learn, learn. <laughs> um, Don't forget kimchi. <laughs> I'm going to keep adapting it too and not worry if I'm doing it 
like as well as you are or the people online I'm just gonna do it my own little it's absolutely that's the key thing is that you it's it works for you it's not about um mimicking some other crazy youtubers um yeah pretty box and I think the narcissistic uh fetishization of the journal is a bit alarming and and I kind of you know this 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 over calligraphizing and and crazy decorate elaborate rococo decorations yes um, and it seems yeah. a bit gendered as well it's very is it it's very much a girl thing oh. um which is a weird conflict of this sort of um uh decoration versus efficiency yeah. It's a weird of tension, of course. Isn't it? Of course that would seep into this, wouldn't it? Like, well, women, if you're gonna bullet journal, make sure it looks good too. Yeah. Right? And it seems to be the one of these things everywhere. where it's a bit like manicures, where it's another thing to keep us from doing something important. Yes. You know, and like not only is it the time it takes to manicure and keep yourself manicured but also once you've been manicured you can't touch anything or do anything whoa okay i do you know what i mean it's another trap for us to stop us from you've just validated my ugly ass bullet journal mm-hmm. i'm gonna keep it ugly i don't have to doodle i don't have to color code the only reason i've got colors and big writing and different sizes is so that i can draw my attention to what's important oh and that's fine and you don't have to apologize for the oh no i'm not going to apologize because that is not i'm not apologizing for my 40 different washi tapes that i ordered for 5.99 of amazon i think that's an interesting point though so when we get to who's it good for um, boys and girls. Boys and girls. <laughs> boys well, and girls. Interestingly, ve- oh, when you, when I start a sentence with the word interestingly, you know it's going to be good. Um, Embrace. <laughs> I found a blog from someone who I don't remember about bullet journaling for guys and how apparently that so Ryder Carroll is a guy, yeah, um, but it has just become a real female thing, okay. and and now blokes find it difficult because it's too girly and so there's all these videos and blogs from men saying um i i just do it in a really paired minimal way and i don't do any drawing and when they do find themselves accidentally drawing something they're like don't worry it's not creative i'm just doing this because i found it online and it seemed useful and they're apologizing for all of this for for making something that looks nice it's really weird Oh, I didn't know there was a dark, gendered side oh, to dark. bullet journaling. I mean, I don't know who's it good for. I think it's good for me. I think it's good for you when on the days when you want to do it. Yeah, I wouldn't. I would recommend it to anybody just to and, see know, if it helps. Why not? Yeah. If you can write, get yourself a journal. Try it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm amazed I actually did it. I have so to say, <laughs> you're amazed that I did it. I would be so <laughs> angry. If you hadn't done it after I bought that expensive purple notebook for you. And you know what? She's even dyed her hair the same colour as the notebook. Oh, that's true. She loves the notebook. (laughs) You love it. Final thoughts? Kimchi. Sodomy. Good luck with your bulleting, guys. Remember, bullet journals don't kill people. Lack of organisation kills people. People kill bullet journals? Mm. Maybe. Bye. Night, night. 
some of episode 21 of the Self Renovators podcast called Bite the Bullet Journal, hosted by Caroline Maybe and Taylor Glenn. And you can find links of where you can listen to more of that and subscribe if you go to our website now at rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour. And that's about all from us for now, as well as the Self Renovators podcast. You've been listening to Welcome to LA, A Mile in My Shoes, and How Do You Sleep at Night? And if you found something great to listen to, then do let me know. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address, and I'll share as many of your recommendations as I can on future shows. So from me, Richard Scott, enjoy the rest of your weekend. I'll be back next week. See you. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.